Hello, Cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. My guest, Paula Yu, is a screenwriter, producer, violinist, and author of several books for young readers, including the gorgeous picture book, Shining Star, the Anna Mae Wong story, with illustrations by Lin Wang. We talked about the significance of the new quarter featuring Wong, the first Asian American to be on U.S. currency, her difficult but fruitful career as a movie actress, and how her story relates to the challenges we face as a society today. Welcome, Paula. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, what ran through your mind when you first found out that Anna Mae Wong was going to be on a U.S. quarter? Oh, I was incredibly thrilled and excited when I heard that Anna Mae Wong was going to be on the quarter because, to me, that is just permanent proof of her legacy and her contributions to not just Hollywood and cinema, but to American history. And um, she is the first Asian American to be on U.S. currency. And it was also, I, I think also a little emotional for me because the news came out last year during the pandemic. I mean, well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, things are hopefully a little bit better because we have vaccines and and the numbers are at least a little bit, they're still scary, but not as scary as they were two years ago. But with the pandemic, there was a spike in anti-Asian racism. I mean, people were getting killed, literally. And so to see this was, I think, also just a reminder from our government, to be honest, saying, you know what? We count. We matter. We are Americans. You know, stop with the xenophobia. Stop with the hatred and racism. You know, you can hold a piece of American history Asian American history now, literally in your hand with this 25 cent quarter. So it was uh, both exciting and fun as a movie buff, uh, as a children's book author who wrote a book on her. But it also was just very meaningful to myself as an Asian American, especially during this time in the pandemic. I mean, it's true that that sort of validation that we are America, you are America. So as you said, you were uh, a children's book author and you'd written about Anna Mae Wong. What was it like having your back top of mind with this new coming out? It was interesting because it made me think about, okay, so my book was published in 2009 by Lee and Lowe Books. It was called Shining Star, the Anna Mae Wong Story. And, you know, it won a couple of awards, uh, including the Carter G. Woodson Award for the Social Sciences and got a lot of nice reviews. But it was kind of like a quiet little book, didn't really, it wasn't a bestseller or anything like that. So it was interesting because when the quarter news came out, suddenly there was interest again in my book. And um, I suddenly had a flood of interviews I had to do, you know, NBC News, um, you know, the New York Times. And so it, it renewed a little bit of interest in my book. And it was interesting because sometimes people would tell me, Paula, your book um, was ahead of its time because it was published in 2009 before Twitter and social media really became a thing. And before hashtag representation matters became trendy and before everyone uh, today, now everyone's talking about Asian American representation on screen. Right. And so sometimes I thought, oh, I wish maybe my book had come out today because it's now more of a talking point in the public. So I think that's why it was kind of neat when the quarter came out, it reminded people of my book. And then I started thinking, what's interesting about Anna Mae Wong is she was ahead of her time too, in terms of fighting 
for more fair representation, authentic and honest portrayals of people of color and especially Chinese characters, Chinese American characters and Asian American and Asian characters on screen. And so I think that that was also really important. But as I also thought about it, I do want to say, I realized my book was never ahead of its time and Anna Mae Wong was never ahead of her time because racism always existed. It took the country, it took the rest of the country to catch up to what Anna Mae Wong was doing decades ago. And I agree that every word that came out of her mouth in her lifetime has dated well because it was just the complete accurate truth. And, and that never does date. I mean, what she was saying about rights and having, you know, a good image and having access to work, she, she spoke those words so clearly and, and so firmly. And it seems like she did her best, really, to make things happen for herself as far as owning her own work. So with all that in mind, what brought you to writing about her? Because, well, I, I, I'll, I'll circle, cycle back a little bit. When The Quarter came out, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just in disbelief that something this amazing and beautiful could happen and that it, it accented her hands, which is a great part of her expression, just so many wonderful things about it. And I thought about it. I'm like, that's how I felt about your book. Because, you know, I'm this children's appropriate book, because I mean, I read it. Mm-hmm. What made you want to write this story for children? Because I was just stunned that I had this to show to my children. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I think the reason why I wrote about Anime Wong specifically for the elementary school audience, uh, my book is appropriate for basically kindergarten through third grade, you know, and now Lee and Lo just released uh, a series of chapter book versions of these books, and they have a series called The Story of. So you can also get the Anime Wong story, Shining Star, not only in picture book form with illustrations by the the incredibly talented Lin Wong, but you can also uh, get a chapter book version, which also has some extra sidebars and it's done in chapters for older readers, you know, third grade and up. And the reason why I decided to write a book about her specifically for children was because um, that's part of my mission in life is to make up for what I didn't grow up with. I'm a Gen Xer. I just turned, uh, fi- I turned 53 this year. And growing up, Asian American and Pacific Islander history, literature, books and culture, fiction, nonfiction, that was rarely taught when I was growing up kindergarten through 12th grade, if at all. I mean, we maybe got a paragraph on how the Japanese Americans were illegally incarcerated during the during World War II. You know, maybe, and here's a here's a workbook exercise on Lunar New Year, and only the Chinese apparently celebrate it and nobody else. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew and I grew up basically not seeing myself in the classroom. I am self-taught when it comes to Asian American history. I was I was hungry and I was thirsty for knowledge. So after college or even during college and even in high school, I would go to the bookstore, just grab random books on Asian American history just to kind of catch up. And when I started writing for children, I thought I, I don't want kids to grow up the way I did. I want them to know now about their heritage, about their contributions to this country. And I think one of the problems with Asian American history not being taught in kindergarten through 12th grade is that it perpetuates the racist stereotype that Asian Americans in this country are the perpetual foreigner, that we're the outsider, that we're not really American. You know, uh, you've heard the classic stories of so many Asian Americans. We've all grown up with some version of the, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Connecticut. No, where are you really from? Oh, I was born in Virginia. No, no, no. 
Where are you really from? Oh, okay. My parents were born in Korea and they, you know, and, and, and I think, and that's always a reminder of you don't really belong here. And I think that's another reason why Anna May Wong spoke to me and I thought her story would be good for kids is because she has a famous quote where she talks about how she felt torn between her race and her homeland. She, she was born in Chinatown in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. In fact, her parents are second generation American. Nobody knows that, you know, and nobody knows that her parents had been in this country you know, or grandparents. You know, she came from a long legacy of American citizens. And I think that that's important for kids to learn. But um, there was also going back to the pandemic, there was a statistic that came out that really disturbed me. It said one out of four children, teenagers, reported being physically harassed, verbally harassed and bullied because of the pandemic you know, China virus, Kung flu, and had our history, our literature, our culture, our pop culture had been taught in depth and new in, in depth and in a nuanced manner all these years, maybe that number today would have been zero because you have to educate to erase the hate. And that's why today six states, including my home state of Connecticut, have now mandated mandatory in-depth Asian American and Pacific Highlander history to be taught in kindergarten through 12th grade in public schools across their states. And more and more states are also adopting similar legislation and mandates. And I think that's important. So, I mean, that's my long-winded answer as to why I wrote this book, because I, I also felt that children are never too young to learn about racism and to learn about the importance of images and how racist images can filter out, unfortunately, into the real world and into real life. I love that phrase, educate to eradicate hate. And I do think that um, children are, are hardwired for that concept because they have such a strong sense of fairness. So the reason that it's so important to catch them when they're young is that, that they are like, that's not fair. <laughs> You can get that concept to them because I've had my kids almost a little angry, like, why, did, you know, I'll show them, you know, a documentary about music or something. And how, why are we not learning about this in school? You know, how come I didn't know about this? I, I, lo I love that you say that kids uh, are always concerned about fairness. That's actually very true. Kids are, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, I yeah. never thought of it that way. And in other words, I think kids are, they're born out of the womb as, uh, they're, the kids are born as natural activists. They really are. And I mean, my, my kids were very young when they were exposed to your anime book. I, I think maybe I, I had a first grader. So the thing that got her was the fairness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, then we're watching anime Wong's first film, first featured role in Tool of the Sea. And it's just the most unfair thing in the world that happens to her in that, you know, and and, she, and she's so young that that they kind of connected and mm -hmm. Again, it's not fair. It's not fair. So, so yeah, I do think that, that that this is an important age to capture them, and that's why it's so great about this book. So, as an artist, like, what roles do you think that Anne May Wong did that that show her to good effect? That show what she could do? All, all of them. Every, every single role that she did, she imbued with humanity and dignity because. 
here's the thing. The other reason why I wrote about anime Wong is when I'm not writing books, I write young adult fiction and nonfiction and, and nonfiction for children. I also am a TV writer and producer. My first job was uh, as staff writer in 2002 for NBC's The West Wing. And since then I've written from everything from uh, The West Wing to Supergirl. And I recently sold a few pilots and a movie. So I still do screenwriting. So I'm very involved in Hollywood behind the scenes in terms of writing a script, producing a script, producing an episode of TV, being on set, being at wardrobe, uh, conversations, being with the casting director to audition actors for their roles. So I'm very familiar with that world, which is why it felt very natural for someone with my background to write about her. And when I researched her movies and watched them, you know, I've always heard about her, you know, when, when I was younger, you know, I, I knew, oh, she's the first Asian American movie star. I really saw her movies. So when I uh, started researching her, it was interesting because I heard, I read a lot of articles and this is back way back in 2007, 2008, about, you know, 15 years ago and 14, 15 years ago. And I remember reading a lot of critical assessment of her saying, oh, she was a sellout, you know, oh, she took these horrible demeaning stereotype roles, you know, just, and then she eventually had a change of heart, but gee, you know, she shouldn't have done those roles in the first place. And having worked in Hollywood, I have to say a job is a job. Being an actor is one of the most difficult things you can do. And you, you got to go where the work is. And I think and I would never, never in a million years ever criticize any actor for taking on a role that is racist or demeaning, because I know the larger story behind that. It's it's and and a lot of them had to do that to pave the way for actors today. For example, the the most famous example is Hattie McDaniel. Here she is. She's nominated and wins the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in um, Gone with the Wind, playing the role of Mammy, one of the most stereotyped, reviled. Just oh, that role is so terrible. But um, but what Hattie McDaniel did was she was such a great actress, and she really gave Mammy. She, Mammy rose above, not completely. She didn't, that character's still very racist and stereotyped, but Hattie McDaniel's performance is art. And she had to walk through the back door. She had to walk through the kitchen to get her award. She was not allowed to sit with the other white actor. She was forbidden from going to the same nightclub afterwards to celebrate with the white cast. And, you know, she basically did this so actors today, actors of color, Black actors, could walk through the front door. And I think it's the same thing with Anna Mae Wong. And when you look at any of her roles, I'll give you an example. Piccadilly, which was one of the movies that she made when she went to Europe. Um, what's amazing about that movie is, yes, she's playing show show. She's playing this stereotyped, one of the stereotypes of Asian women is the exotic, uh, you know, flower uh, or the submissive, you know, covering your mouth when you laugh, like the submissive China doll um, or the evil dragon lady villain. So in Piccadilly, she's basically, you know, the, the shy, demure, uh, submissive, oriental, quote unquote, woman who loves to dance. And she's chosen to dance at this movie. And there, there's an incredible moment where she's with her husband and uh, he's reading the newspaper. And she's so excited that she's going to be a dancer. And he's reading the newspaper and she kind of flirts with him. She kind of, you know, pulls the newspaper back and peeks at him and, and her eyes. She could convey a multitude of emotions just with a flicker, just with a look in her eye. And when I saw that, I was like, she's flirting. She's 
and showing genuine love for her husband. She's showing her passion for David. This is, I believe this character, as stereotyped as it is, as stereotyped as this movie is, I sympathize with Shosho because Anna Mae Wong transcended that role with her incredible acting talent. And, you know, and, and I've joked about this before, but I started watching her movies. I rewound them and started watching them again because I realized, oh, she's giving the audience and especially maybe the Asian American viewers, she's giving them subversive side eye. She's kind of communicating a little bit of, yeah. I had to take the role. I got to eat. I got to pay rent. You know, um, I, I got to take this role. But you you know what I'm really doing. And, and uh, you know, and she needs to be credited for that. I think a lot of times when we talk about Anna Mae Wong, we talk about her achievements. We talk about her legacy in fighting anti-Asian racism on screen. Mm-hmm, the pioneering thing. Yeah. yeah, the pioneering. But we need to take a step back and also just talk about what a great actress she was. What a great actor and artist she was. Um, and... Because at the end of the day, she never she never woke up one day and said, I want to be an activist and fight for fair roles. She woke up and was like, I want to be a movie star. And I'm good at this. Yeah. And, and we need to celebrate that. I think that when too often in our country, we celebrate the icon. Right. And by doing that, we lose the humanity. We, we lose the artist behind that icon. And so by elevating people to that level, in a way, what we're doing is racist because we're erasing their humanity and only talking about. So, no, that that's. Yeah, I, I feel that way about like actors like Sidney Poitier, too, where he's just he's so good. He's one of my favorite actors, period. And I do feel that way about Anna Mae Wong. And when you talk about her kind of wink nod to the audience, I think she's got a literal side eye. And it's amazing. <laughs> and I've seen it so many times where she'll just. <laughs> be gliding away, doing this kind of stoic character, but she kind of does this side eye like, hey, <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. babes, you know? <laughs> exactly. There, there's humor. That's the other thing, too. I would love, I, you know, if she were alive today or if things weren't so racist, I mean, things are still racist, but things weren't really racist back in the 1920s and 30s, wouldn't she be amazing at a comedy can you imagine her as the lead in a rom-com or a screwball comedy? Like one of my favorite screwball comedies is The Front Page. Can you imagine her as Hildy? Yes. I want to see the Asian American uh, remake of The Front Page with a young anime Wong as uh, Hildy. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because yes, I, I, you know, there's a, a channel on YouTube that has a bunch of her old um, British films and some television roles. And there's these hints of comedy in there. Like roles that aren't so great. Like she's playing a servant to Barbara Stanwyck and, and, you know, it's not the best role, but there's this kind of edge to her voice, you know, <laughs> at the end of her life that I'm like, oh, I could see that in an 80s television comedy, you know, <laughs> I could see that in a screwball, you know, of the 40s. In pre-code, oh my gosh, she would have killed it just because of Piccadilly, as we were talking about. There's a, there's a kind of sass in there, mm-hmm. an energy that is or pre-code yes but um there's also this british movie elstree calling where she has this really really brief role she's wearing her piccadilly costume but she's playing catherine and taming of the shrew and she's throwing things and yelling and it's the briefest moment but i was like oh my god and also the chinese film listen to me go on huh. but the chinese film that she made where you see her grinning and laughing mm-hmm. it just came together this picture of Okay, she was really great at playing that 
dignified character. And that was also how she would present herself in an interview. But it wasn't all she was. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I agree with you. If there was something I wanted to see her in, I would want to see her cut loose and be funny. <laughs> you yeah, know? She would have killed it. And I and I think again, it's it's a testament to her acting. And I think also people don't realize she had been acting since she was a child. You know, growing up in Los Angeles, her her father, her parents owned a Chinese laundry. So she would be dragging these huge baskets filled with laundry to customers. And they would often film in the Chinatown area. So she would kind of drop her basket, forget about her customers, and just watch them make these movies. And they actually nicknamed her, the movie crews nicknamed her the Curious Chinese Child because she was always asking questions and they were very nice. They're like, oh, this is a camera. This is the boom op, you know, this is the microphone. And she would rush home and then practice acting in front of the mirror. So she's kind of, and also in a way she's self-taught, you know, she didn't go to the the famous uh, acting classes and things like that. She's self-taught. She had raw talent. And so that commitment from a very young age to know as a child, I want to be an actor. I want to be a movie star. And the pipeline, she never wavered from that. Never. And, oh, and I did want to bring up, you know, what's also, I think another thing that made me proud about her being on the quarter is it's also a celebration of Anna Mae Wong as a Chinese American. She has the classic Asian American and also just the classic immigrant story, which is also just the classic American story, the rags to riches. Uh, she, her family, they didn't want her to be an actor. actor and, and it's not because, and I don't want to perpetuate any Asian tiger parent thing. It's not that at all. No family wants their kid to be an actor. Just the worst thing you can do. It's a lifetime of rejection. Very, very difficult to make it. And, um, but once they realized that she wasn't going to give up and when they realized how she was getting, she was getting a lot of auditions, her dad decided, well, if you're going to be stubborn and become an actor, which is just disrespectful and a horrible career choice, I'm going to drive you to your auditions. And, you know, going back um, as an Asian American, as a Korean American, my parents also really emphasized education. And, you know, they wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor and, you know, and I wanted to be a writer. And um, what was interesting, too, was before I became a writer, I was at, I'm, I still play violin today. I'm a professional freelance violinist. And I originally wanted to become I actually since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I also love the violin. So I was like, I'm going to be a writer violinist. That was my goal since I was like five years old. And um and it was interesting because um, I remember my dad drove me every Saturday. Uh, he passed in 2016. But before then, when I was a kid and in high school, he drove me every Saturday to youth orchestra rehearsals at the Hart School of Music in Connecticut at the University of uh, Hartford. And he would just either sit in the car or go to the mall and just hang out for several hours because I had violin lessons. I had orchestra. I had chamber music classes and everything. When I read that about Anna Mae Wong, that real, that's what I think connected me to, not only as a Hollywood writer and as an Asian American, but just as a daughter. To me, my book really celebrates a father-daughter story. And it just reminded me of just the sacrifices my dad did. You know, he was, he was going to play golf. <laughs> he was going to relax. He was an engineer. He, was, <laughs> he needed the day off. And here he is spending six hours taking a nap in the car in the parking lot while I'm at orchestra, you know, and, and I think that we need, when we hold her in our hands, when we hold her quarter, we need to understand that we're holding not just a beautiful act, talented actor and, and a, an activist ahead of her time fighting anti-Asian racism, but we're holding 
you know, a piece of family history, which I think is so lovely. And she is deeply connected to that history. I mean, I, that is one of my favorite parts of the book when he is driving her and I, um, the China, China film, I felt like that, that had a lot to do with her dad as well, because, because she knew how important his heritage was. She knew how important it was to go there and understand that heritage. But like you said, at the same time, it's a quintessentially American story. She just dives in. She makes it happen. She makes her work. And it's impressive. She has as much control as possible. And that's why there are so many memorable screen moments. Because she did it. You know, if it wasn't talent, it was her creating the work. Exactly. Yeah. And even when she started, when she came back from China... Um, when she did Lady from Chongqing and uh, a bunch of other more positive roles for Asian and Chinese characters, she donated some of the proceeds from those movies to help the Chinese refugees when Japan had colonized uh, China. So she also uh, was an activist that way. You know, she rage donated. Yeah. She put her money where her mouth was, you know, just uh, and she, you know. She she's also that's actually I just never I just thought of this. She's another she also was uh an example back in Hollywood's golden age of an actor, an artist weaponizing the arts, using the arts to fight back politically. Mm-hmm. And that's also something we should celebrate, not just fighting against anti-Asian racism, but also, you know, fighting to help China during uh the uh wars that they were having with Japan and, and donating money that way. I mean. Today, you always, you know, you see actors and they're always donating or talking, you know, doing, she was fundraising back then. That was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had a network of friends. I mean, there's people like Paul Robeson she was friends with. They, they, this was, this was their lifestyle was, was to be involved deeply in life and to not leave people behind once you get that fame. So yeah, it's quite amazing. I would, now this isn't movie related, but I would like to mention your book, um, just put the name out there from a whisper to a rallying cry, the killing of Vincent Chin and the trial that galvanized the Asian American, because it is so relevant to our conversation today and an extension of an, of you speaking about Asian American lives in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other projects that you are working on right now that you'd like to share? Yeah. And, and actually just going to uh, From a Whisper to a Rallying Cry, which was about Vincent Chin, that was the first federal civil rights trial for an Asian American. Uh, Vincent Chin was killed in 1982 in Detroit, uh, well, just outside Detroit. And um, his two killers who were white, uh, were they, were they pled and were found guilty to manslaughter, but they were given three years probation and a $3,000 fine each. And that galvanized the Asian American movement where Asian Americans from all backgrounds, Chinese American, Japanese American, Korean, Filipino, they all got together across the country and protested, which led to this federal civil rights trial where uh, the killers were indicted on charges of violating Vincent Chin's civil right to be in a place of public accommodation on account of his race. And the reason why this was a big deal was up until 1982, Asian Americans were not really considered part of the Civil Rights Act. You know, for a very long time, we were always considered, quote unquote, adjacent white, only when it was convenient. When there were too many of us, then you had the purging of Chinatown. So you had the 1871 massacre of Chinatown in Los Angeles. You had uh, the rounding up, the illegal incarceration of the Japanese American during uh, World War II. So um, that's why I wrote that book. And it's interesting because back in the 1980s, as today, there was a spike in anti-Asian racism because 
uh, we, we were in our second oil crisis and uh, car companies were laying off a GM Chrysler Ford. The American car companies were laying off hundreds of thousands of auto workers across the country because we couldn't compete with import cars, especially the ones from Japan that were smaller and more fuel efficient. So instead of uh, being accountable and trying to compete, we blame Japan. And very similar to what's happening today, we blame China for the pandemic when we shouldn't have done that. Because back in the 1980s, there were so few, all you had was Bruce Lee. And nobody, nobody remembered Anna Mae Wong. You didn't have any positive or realistic portrayals of Asians on screen, which is what I think probably subconsciously influenced what happened to Vincent Chin, what happened to the anti-Asian racism back then. So uh, that in a way, that's how I'm connecting my book to Anime Wong. So I uh, circling back to that and, um, and, and then going to the new book that I'm working on, which is due next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got to wrap this up, man. <laughs> that's what I'm doing after this podcast. Um, yeah. It's called Rising from the Ashes. And it is a narrative young adult nonfiction book, just like my Vincent Chin book. And it's about the 1992 Los Angeles uprising, which we call, which we called back then the 1992 LA riots uh, that was uh, spurred on by the not guilty verdict in the LAPD beating trial of Rodney Glenn King, and also spurred in part by the probation of um, a Korean store owner who killed a young Black teenager, uh, falsely accusing her of shoplifting, and her name was Latasha Harlins. And my book is about the LA riots or the LA uprising, but specifically from the point of view of Koreatown, because I'm Korean-American. So it's about the almost half a billion dollars in damage that was disproportionately created in Koreatown. And I talk about the bridges that were built after that between the Korean American and Black community in LA. And also just in terms of Asian and Black solidarity today, where are we with both the Asian American community and the Black community in terms of both of us fighting together against racism? You know, how Asian Americans, we now have Koreans for Black lives. You know, there, there's a there's a beautiful phrase in Korea. There's no literal translation in Korean for Black Lives Matter. So the Korean version of that is called Black Lives Are Precious. Oh. And, you know, and also the Black community has been fighting back against anti-Asian racism. You had two very popular and famous artists, you know, Megan Thee Stallion and Rihanna, both donated uh, up to $100,000 to the families of the victims who were killed in the Atlanta spa shootings um, in 2021. So I think that my book is really a love letter to both the Korean American and the Black community and, and a love letter of solidarity. So that book is coming out from uh, Norton Young Readers, which is the children's imprint of W.W. Norton and Company. That's coming out in fall 2023. And, um, and again, actually, that book, tying it back to Anna Mae Wong, I talk a lot in that book about media imagery of Korean store owners back then, of the conflict between the Korean and Black communities. I mean, for example, the LA Times would later apologize for sensationalizing and over-exaggerating the conflict between Korean store owners and the Black community, which exacerbated the damage that was done during uh, the 1992 uprising. And talking about the imagery back then of Asian Americans, you had a lot of stereotypes of um, in the 1980s and early 1990s, there were a lot of stereotype roles of Korean characters that were mean store owners that were racist. And that became that became our image. And Anna Mae Wong would have been pissed if she were alive today. She would have fought back against that. And, um, and actually going back to Anna Mae Wong, um, you see the cycle happening again. What she went through back 
in the golden age, you know, people taping their eyes back to make it look like this racist, exaggerated, quote unquote, oriental slant of not being able to kiss a white actor on screen because interracial kissing was banned in Hollywood back then. And the yellow face makeup that they did. We're still having that problem today. And I'm going to stand up. Uh, your listeners can't see this, but I'm going to I'm wearing a popular T-shirt that came out a few years ago. Okay. So I'm going to read this, Scarlett and Emma and Tilda and Matt. So this is a casting problem we're talking about here, but we're still having yellow face casting to this day. Yeah, these are. this was in reference to, that was the year that four things happened. Scarlett Johansson played a Japanese character in Ghost in the Shell. Emma Stone played an Asian American, uh, you know, one quarter Asian in uh, the movie Aloha. She would later apologize for that. Uh, Matt Damon played a, a, a white guy who saved uh, the Great Wall from being invaded, I think, by aliens and, you know, white savior uh, problem. And Tilda Swinton played uh, the ancient one in the doctor in the the Marvel movie, Doctor Strange. Um, and they made to be fair, they did make her character Celtic. But then that led to cries of erasure, even though it was a racist character to begin with. Why reboot that character and make it more positive? So. Uh, we're still having that problem today. I do think things have improved. You know, as as a TV writer, I've the three pilots that I've sold, all Korean or Asian American cast and stories. That's good to hear. Yeah, 20 years ago when I started out in Hollywood, I was often told, oh, we want to option one of your books that you wrote, but can you make the character white and have the and have your character be the best friend? And I was like, no, you're not optioning that book. Today, now my books are, people want to option them, but they don't want to white, they don't want to erase them. They don't want to, you know, white center them. And yeah, all the projects I've been working on have been Asian centric, have been Asian American forward. And that is a big improvement. So I do think things are improving, but I will say this should have happened a long time ago. You know, we're still behind the times, you know, catch up and and in a way, this never should have happened in the first place. Anna Mae Wong should never have had to have fought in the first place. She should have just been working on her craft. Talent should have been talent. No, it's true. And I do feel like right now, like when when I'm the shows I'm seeing, the movies I'm seeing, yes, there is more representation and it feels great. It looks great. If if it's just a more accurate representation of our world. But I it's time to maybe celebrate a little bit, but it's not time to rest. I do see that. There's still a long way to go, but I do feel encouraged that like we're talking about this, it's out there. And so much of that is people like you with your books, telling different parts of history and tying it into the whole, the arts and the activism, it all goes together and it's all a part of who we are. So thank you for your work. I really appreciate you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, of course. And thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. and. Um... No, and I appreciate your podcast because uh, all these classic movies, I mean, uh, it's funny. I think when you say classic movie today, I think kids think the 1980s. <laughs> but I, it's funny because growing up, I actually loved black and white movies and, and the old movies from back in the day because I remember growing up watching black and white movies with my mom. And she, yeah, so and she even had those big, huge Life magazine books that were filled with like photos of Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe. And, and I remember memorizing those life photos. So no, thank, thank you for your uh, podcast and celebrating what I think today still is a, a golden era. And um, and I do want to say too, um, it's not just anime Wong. There were so many 
famous and beautiful and gorgeous uh, Asian American movie stars back then. And, and she was just one of them. And we need to celebrate. When I look back at a lot of those classic movies, I'm often very surprised by how, oh, wow, there were a lot of really good Asian American actors back then. And we need to celebrate all of them because they paved the way for where we are today. And hopefully today's generation of actors and writers can do the same. Uh, and we won't have to have this conversation in 20, 40 years, hopefully, or sooner. Here's hoping. Exactly. For more information about the Anime Wong Quarter, how to find Paula's books, and information about other Asian American actors from classic Hollywood, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. As always, I appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. This is Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time.